Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 9. If the passage of Scripture looks familiar to you, it's because it's the same one that I preached last week. This is a part two, as it were, a second message on the same passage. I'm excited for the opportunity to share this with you. Title of the sermon in Luke 9, 28 to 36, A Greater Glory, A More Sure Word. Last week in our time together in Luke, we spent uh, our time considering the incredible glory of Christ through the event which Matthew and Mark call the Transfiguration. And our point of emphasis was indeed the glory of Christ, that through a realization of that glory, we should hear Him. We should obey Him. I'd like to spend one more week on this thought tonight from the later days of the life of Jesus and through the later writings of one of the three men that was present there at this transfiguration. In 2 Peter, Peter is preparing for his death. He knows time is short. He writes to the believers throughout Asia Minor. And he writes to them of that which he witnessed, this glorious event called the Transfiguration. I mentioned the Transfiguration likely took place within the final year before Jesus' death, after which everything would change. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit would fall upon the disciples in Jerusalem and the church would be born. Thousands of men and women were added to the church more and more every day. Peter would witness the conversion of the Samaritans, then the conversion of the Gentile world. He would minister in miraculous ways throughout the Roman Empire. And in 2 Peter, he is writing, as I mentioned, to the Christians in Asia Minor. He's warning them of false teaching much of what he says overlapping with what we read in the book of Jude. But maybe more important than even the, the warning against false teaching is Peter's overarching emphasis upon knowing God, knowing Christ. This theme is pervasive in every aspect of 2 Peter's chapters and is most heavily emphasized within the first chapter. So while the official text is, we are in our Luke series, is Luke 9, 28 to 36, while we're playing off of the concept of the transfiguration, we are actually going to spend our time in 2 Peter this evening. In Luke 9, if you have your Bibles there, we read in verse 28, And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up unto a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white as, and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory in the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. 
And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. This is the context of the transfiguration. In Second Peter, we read some aspects of Peter's ministry as related to this transfiguration. He tells the church what this event should mean for them and by extension what it should mean for us. So we're going to have some fun this evening, beginning about halfway through 2 Peter 1, going to the end of 2 Peter 1, then jumping to the beginning of 2 Peter 1, and walking through a few verses in the beginning of 2 Peter 1. It's going to be a, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. It may not be the most contextually clear message I've ever preached, but I hope that its content in and of itself will be quite clear to you. So let's dig in. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter 1 now. Verse 15. 2 Peter 1.15, we read this. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. We've just jumped into the middle of a context. Forgive me for that, but I'm not going to give you too much background as of yet. Peter has just given them a set of exhortations, which we'll come back to. He tells the churches that he's getting these things written down because he's going to die. And he was going to do his best, not only to ensure that they knew these things, but that they had them always in remembrance, that they would always have these things in remembrance. And what a better way than to write a letter, than to have it circulating, than to have the Word of God, which is inerrant and preserved, put down so that future generations could benefit from it. So that they would always remember these important concepts which Peter was covering and he gives the reason why these concepts are so important in verse 16. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter tells them, Look, what I'm telling you, these aren't just fairy tales. These aren't just stories to help you get to bed at night. This isn't just interesting anecdotal stuff. This is real. These are not cunningly devised fables. He has not made up these expectations, these commands, based upon some strange dreams of a half-starved zealot. He did not come up with these concepts in secret by himself. They were not given to him in a cave. He did not have a hand reach out from heaven and lay it all on him. This is not some secret mythology or Gnostic secret teaching. He tells the church that when they, and notice the plural, when they made known unto the believers the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the apostles stood up and said, this is true, the coming of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It was an extension of what they knew to be true from their eyewitness testimony. We saw this. We know this. John says these are things that we have handled of the word of life. They witnessed Jesus' glory. They saw him do miracles. It was not just what one man did or said or thought in the dark that became the foundation of what we call Christianity. It was what one man did in the light and 12 other man, men saw and testified to the next set and then to the next set and then to the next set. Each generation testifying of the truth of God's word to the next down through history. 
Christianity was proliferated by a multitude of eyewitnesses sharing the same account throughout the known world, reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ from the beginning of his ministry at his baptism until the day that he ascended into heaven. But more important for us this evening is the next two verses where Peter describes specifically what it is that he's talking about when he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, that would be Jesus, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is thinking back upon that time when the Lord was transfigured before him and his comrades James and John when he watched as Jesus was changed, when his glory was unveiled, it shone, and Moses and Elijah stood with him and talked with him about his death. And as Jesus and the disciples walked, recall Peter, not knowing what to say, sought to break the silence with a suggestion. And we talked about this last week that Peter here kind of put his foot in his mouth a little bit. He didn't know what to say. He was looking to fill the gap. He's one of those guys that just kind of has to say something when things feel awkward. You've known those, right? It's really awkward, so somebody, I mean, somebody has to say something. So Peter says, Lord, should we build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? It's good, Lord, that we should be here. And the text adds he had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> And while he's talking, they enter into a cloud and the voice of the, of the Father in heaven interrupts him and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then following this in all three Gospels is recorded three more words that the Lord, that the Father said out of the cloud. Hear ye him. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. The transfiguration revealed Jesus' glory. The transfiguration revealed Jesus' majesty. The voice that followed the transfiguration said, because Jesus is majestic, because Jesus is glorious, because he is everything that he has claimed to be, on the basis of his authority, listen to him and obey him. If Jesus says, do it, do it, because he's the Son of God. That's the idea. That was the emphasis. That was the focus. The authority based upon the transfiguration that would carry over into an eyewitness account by which Peter would tell everybody who he met, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the true gospel. And I know this because I saw him transfigured. I know this because I ministered with him. I saw the miracles. I saw the power. I saw the authority. I heard the voice from heaven saying, hear him. Jesus received God's divine stamp of approval even here 
upon his message and upon his ministry. And it is this reality by which we are able to have the utmost confidence in the message of the gospel. It's not from some warmongering clan leader, the message of the gospel. The message is not just from some ecstatic visionary. The message is from one who in every element of his life from beginning to end bore the marks of the authority of God so much so that the voice of God from heaven came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. But then notice Peter's next words, which are so very important. Verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. I love this. As Peter speaks of the incredible power of the words which they heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he says, look, I was there. I'm an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. He says, oh, and by the way, none of that really even matters. That's not the greatest witness you have. The greatest witness that you have to the glory of Christ is not me having heard those words on the Mount. The greatest witness of the glory of Christ is not me having seen the miracles is not me having seen the resurrected Lord. The greatest witness of the authority of Christ is the Word of God. They, Peter tells them, have not just a message with the same degree of authority, but a more sure word of prophecy a word which is more secure, more steadfast, more convincing than what Peter and James and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as Peter speaks of this more sure word of prophecy, he extols the virtues of commands so clear and definite that they carry the same weight as the audible voice of God from heaven. He tells his readers, and that's you and I included, that we would do well to take heed. If the word of God is so sure, is so steadfast, is so powerful, if Old Testament, New Testament, if the scriptures are more sure for us a testimony of the authority of Jesus Christ than even a voice from heaven, we would do well to care about what this book says. That's what Peter's telling us. And Peter says that this more sure word is like a light that shines in a dark place. It is the first source of illumination into the darkness of a heart. It is interesting here that the word translated dark by the King James, the, the, the word dark for dark place, is actually a word, it's used only this one time in the New Testament, but in other uh, forms of literature, it's used to carry the idea of some place that's dirty or dim and dusty. Uh, not just a dark place, which would be beautiful if only you could turn on the lights, but rather a dark and dirty place, like the inside of an old poorly lit building where you can hardly see and it smells and it's dusty and it's dirty and it's in every way undesirable. And in those places, you hold tight to your flashlight because it's nasty and it's dark and it's dirty and it's dusty and it's probably somewhat dangerous in there. And Peter says that as we have the word of God, that it is 
as if it's a flashlight. Something more sure and steadfast than anything that was experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration on that day. And this more sure word of prophecy as our guiding light of authority validates the authority of Jesus Christ. And it guides us, Peter says, into the dawn. Into the day that dawns in our hearts. What is this dawn that Peter is speaking of? He talks about the day dawning and the day star rising in our hearts. Speaking to believers here, what is this idea of the day dawning, of the day star arising in our hearts? Now, I told you we began in the middle of the context in, first, in 2 Peter 1. You'll see as we work our way backwards in a few minutes that the knowledge of God is, in fact, what's being spoken of by Peter here. That he's speaking of the knowledge of God and an understanding of who God is and what he expects, that as that works itself out in our lives, as that grows in our lives, and as we grow in Christian virtues, then the Word of God, uh, which starts as a catalyst then begins to flow and live and radiate in our hearts in a new and special and unusual way. So that the day dawns, the day star arises in our hearts, that we transition just from having to obey some commands to living out the fullness of the life of Christ. And there's a difference. There are some people in this room, and there's a large contingency of Christians who do love the Lord and want to do what's right, but you'll never get beyond obedience stage. You'll never get beyond reading the Bible and saying, I have to do this, and then doing some of it and not doing other things, and just doing what you can tolerate, and feeling like it's an obligation and an expectation. And you do it because you know you should, but that's about it for you. And Peter says you do well to take more heed than that. There's something more. There's something more to the Christian life than that. There's a point in the Christian life where the light doesn't just shine anymore, but the day dawns, the day star rises in our hearts, where our entire being is consumed with a love for Christ and propels our every action, where we're truly walking in the Spirit. If you live in the Spirit, Paul says, then walk in the Spirit. There are many Christians who will spend their entire lives living in the Spirit. In other words, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you have no idea what it is to walk in the Spirit. You have no idea what it is to actually have the Spirit compelling your actions so that you want what God wants and you don't want what God doesn't want so that every fiber of your being says, I am going to do this not because I understand it or because my flesh wants it, but because I know it's what God wants and that means I want it more than anything. Peter says this is where you want to be. And it starts with regarding a more sure word of prophecy. Taking heed thereunto as a light that shines in the darkness and it'll shine its light into your heart and it'll continue to illuminate and it'll give you what you need until the day that the day dawns and the day star rises in your heart and it fills you and consumes you so that life is now in Christ and life is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, as Paul would say. And it's an unfortunate reality that relatively few Christians will ever actually experience that. At least in this culture. A culture that's so spiritually weak, soft, lazy, and apathetic to the things of the Word of God. So 
So what is it that is more secure than hearing the voice directly from heaven? More secure than the eyewitness of the testimony of 12 men? More secure than the signs and wonders which they performed? It's the word of God, and we read that in verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The sure word of prophecy, <coughs> excuse me, the sure word of prophecy which Peter refer, references here is the word of God. And specifically at that point, uh, the Old Testament and likely a few of the epistles, not all of them had been written yet. Peter says that the scriptures stand as a more sure testimony of the authority and the authenticity of the message of Jesus Christ than any eyewitness ever could. That contained within the scriptures, that would be Old Testament, was not simply the thoughts of pious men, but the very words of God. And just as authoritative as those words which were heard on the Mount of Transfiguration on that day. Peter says that holy men of God spake as they were moved, that literally meaning to bear along, to bring along, to, to, to carry along, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost carried them along. We talked about it a little bit uh, today in, in another context. The idea here is that the Holy Spirit of God propelled their thoughts and actions and motives, didn't overcome them, didn't make them automatons or robots, but, but compelled them like wind filling a sail propelling you in the direction that you should go. You've experienced this before if you've been, ever walked in the Spirit, where you've been witnessing and all of a sudden verses are coming to your mind and answers are coming to your mind and you're just, you're, you're, you're saying things and, and you're directing them toward truth and it's as if you're uncontestable. Everything that they ask, every, every uh, way that they attend to, to attempt to contend with what you're saying, you have the answer and you come back and you say it and it's clear. And it's as clear as, as it could possibly be in your mind and you make that clear to them and then you walk away from that conversation and you say, what just happened? I haven't thought about those verses in a long time. They just came right to mind. I've never, re when I described that, it made more sense to me than it had ever made sense before. Sometimes you will say something and you'll say, oh, that's what that means, as you're explaining it to someone else. What are you doing there? Well, you're being a vessel through which the Holy Spirit can work. He's putting the pieces together, and He uses you. That's the idea. The Holy Spirit led these men into all truth and used them as vehicles through which the Word of God would be spoken and written. So that, Peter says, we can have more confidence in the message, even of the Old Testament prophets, that their testimony of the truths and the authority of Jesus as Messiah is more sure than a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And Peter says in verse 20 that these words are not open to private interpretation. The word of God is not open for us to read any way we like, for us to read and then say, well, what does this mean to me? Well, it doesn't mean what, what, what you say it means is not what it means to me. It doesn't matter what it means to me, and it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what God intended when he had it written. That's what we need to find. It's not open to private interpretation. It doesn't matter what the Bible means to us. The Bible is the living word in that it is powerful, but it is not a living document in that it adapts itself to conform to contemporary thought and culture. The Bible means what it means. 
And it is our job to find out what it means. It is not our job to wrap the Bible around culture. The Bible has a meaning, God's meaning. It is our job to find out what God meant and then to hear it, to obey it. Now, this is the final verse in 2 Peter 1, here in verse 21. Now, I'd like for us to collect our thoughts and understand where we are before we go back and talk about that first little bit of 2 Peter. On the basis of Peter's death, which he foresees in the future, he desires the words of his epistle to help solidify the remembrance of an important message, and that message is knowing God, knowing Christ. He tells them that the knowledge of God is revealed in a sure word of prophecy, more sure than even a voice from heaven. And that sure word of prophecy is the scriptures. And that we would do well to take heed, to obey them. First, obey them implicitly to navigate the darkness of this world. And then as we do so, as we obey, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, then that day will dawn and the day star will arise in our hearts so much so that the knowledge of God will break through and fill every corner with his authority and glory and we will be sold out to him. With all that in mind, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Notice how important the concept of the knowledge of Christ is to Peter's opening here. He says, I, I'm praying grace and peace upon you through the knowledge of God. Then he says, and this is according to the power that God has given us for all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Knowledge. The knowledge of God that the knowledge of God would propel them into a life of grace and peace. And as we're talking through this, remember where this knowledge is coming from. It's coming from the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is the source, the more sure word of prophecy, the source of the knowledge that Peter says you've got to have if you want to please the Lord. Peter says that God's divine power has supplied for us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Everything that you need in order to live this life to its fullest is found in the knowledge of God. Is found rooted in the things of God. I'd like you to think back on your week, on your month. Think back on all the things you've done. Think back on all the activities Think back on all of the, 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 um, the actions. Think back to all of the essentials. Peter says everything that is essential to life and godliness is rooted in virtue. Everything else is non-essential. 
Everything else is non-essential. Everything else is not even God's best. All things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He's called you to two things. First, to glory, and that's to reflect the glory of Christ. Second is to virtue, to moral excellence. And this is what the knowledge of Christ does. The knowledge of Christ compels us unto glory and virtue. It compels us to glorify God and to obey God. How much do you know Christ? How much do you obey him? And at this point this evening, as we consider the events of the transfiguration, we consider what I preached last week, it is true that we ought to read that passage, consider the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, regard the message of the Father, hear him, and to do exactly that. If you want to be fully equipped to live a life of spiritual success, if you want to be fully equipped for everything that life may ask of you so that you can go from point A to point B to point C in godliness and virtue, then here's the key. You need to get to know God. You need to hear him. You need to regard the authority of God's word, that more sure word of prophecy. Peter says the very words of Scripture as we read Old Testament, New Testament accounts, validate the authority of Christ. And they ought to convince us as well. But what's the point of being convinced of Jesus' authority? Why? Why does it matter that we are convinced of who Christ is and of his authority? Well, because if you're convinced of Jesus' authority, then you will be convinced to obey him. Once again, to the degree that you're not obeying him is the degree to which you simply do not believe that Christ has the authority over you. You're not convinced of his authority. So I'd like to take this in a few directions. We're going to continue in the passage in just a moment through our application, but I'd like to jump into application this evening. And point number one, the Bible is the words of God. More sure than any eyewitness account of the transfiguration of Jesus' glory and of the Father's declaration of Jesus' authority are the accounts of the Word of God. More sure than any eyewitness account is the picture of the Passover lamb, which points to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ found in Genesis. More sure than any eyewitness account is the promise in Isaiah 53 that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace upon him and that with his stripes we are healed. More sure than any eyewitness account is the determination in the voice of Abraham when he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only begotten son. And Isaac says, Father, where is the lamb? And, and Abraham says, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. More sure than any eyewitness account is the confidence of Job when he proclaimed, I know my Redeemer liveth. More sure than any eyewitness account is the record of the Holy Spirit through the Gospels. More sure than any eyewitness account is the teachings of Christ's apostles throughout the New Testament. And as we read through account after account after account of the inspired record, we rest upon the reality that God has preserved for us the Word of God so that we may know Him and that in knowing Him, we can obey Him. The Bible is the Word of God. 
The word of God is a more sure word of prophecy. It is sufficient to lead you into all the knowledge of Christ. It is sufficient to bring you unto all life and godliness. It exists to be that light into the darkness of our hearts to guide our feet into the way of truth. It becomes our source of knowledge and it becomes our source of knowledge so that it can then become our source of obedience. The Bible is the words of God, point two. To hear him, you must first know him. To hear him, you must first know him. Knowledge of what God expects will always proceed obedience to what God expects. We can obey that which we do not understand, but we cannot obey that which we do not know. Children, you're asked from time to time to obey that which you don't understand. And you're called to obey simply because your parents said so, and that's right. Your government says so, and that's right. Your boss says so, and that's right. You're called to obey. But you can't obey that which you don't know. And parents, that's, that's your obligation. That's the government's obligation. That's the employer's obligation. They can't ask you to do something that they haven't asked you to do or expect you. They can't expect you to do something they haven't asked of you. Right? In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifest unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, catch this, that your joy may be full that your joy may be full. All things that pertain unto life and godliness are rooted in this word, in the knowledge of Christ. And you take that knowledge and you translate it into obedience that your joy may be full. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that the greatest happiness in your life comes from obeying explicitly what this book says. That the greatest happiness you can possibly have in life comes from taking the word of God and wrapping your life around it so closely that the day star arises in your hearts, that the day dawns, that, that, that you are a living testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ. That it doesn't just touch your life. That it doesn't just touch your Sunday. That it doesn't just touch a few things that you're willing to do without or a few things that you're willing to do, but that it is literally the lifeblood of your existence. And if you have the faith to receive it, that is where fullness of joy lies. Do you have the faith to receive that this evening? Do you actually have the faith to believe that? that you will be far happier having wrapped your life around the precepts of the Word of God than trying to wrap the Word of God around your life. Fullness of joy. But to hear Him, you must first know Him. I've often spoken with people struggling with sin who have come face to face with a doctrinal conundrum. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It is not a relationship of no's, in fact, it's a relationship of yeses. James calls the word of God the law of liberty. It is our source of freedom, it's not our source of restriction.
We do not live in a religion of no's, of can'ts, that you can't do this and you can't do that. And if you're living in this type of realm, if you're living and everything that the Bible says is right, you see as, and the Bible says is wrong, you see as a can't. The Bible says, I can't do that. Well, then one of two things is likely. You either get that the Bible is the word of God and you're living in perpetually unhappy state, feeling like you're missing out on all sorts of fun but doing it, or you're pretending to do well and you're actually just a complete hypocrite. Christianity is not about what you can't do. When you read in the book to do things and to not do things, it's not telling you you can't do. It's telling you if you're living for Christ, you won't want to do. And if you want to do those things, there's something wrong with you spiritually. You're not where God wants you to be. Christianity is not about restraining yourself from doing the things that you want to do. Christianity is about being so filled with the Spirit that there's no room for those things. You've got something so much better that you don't want it anymore. That's what this relationship is about. And the question is, how do we live this way? How do we live in such a way that we actually want to do right so that our Christian life is not about disciplining sin out, but rather living in righteousness and so watching our sin fall away because that's the remnants of that which we don't want anymore. It's that which is old and ugly and busted. It's like trading in your old, rusty bucket of a car for something new and shiny and better in every way. How do we do that? The key is the knowledge of God. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, the essence of man's devotion to the Lord was compelled by the degree to which he understood who God is. And the deeper a man understood the nature of the true and living God, the more he saw himself in a true light and how depraved he is, and the more he devoted himself to God's authority above his own. So then the answer to our question, how is it that you come around to hearing Jesus? How is it that you come around to actually wanting to do what God's word says and not just saying, well, I can't do this, but I want what God is and what God has for me. What will compel a man to want what God wants and hate what God hates, even against his former desires? It's the knowledge of the holy. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. It is knowing God so intimately that you have put God in his place and then you will be put in your place and you will see through the help of the Holy Spirit as that light that shines into the darkness becomes a dawn and the day star rising in your heart. You will see and be consumed with a desire to serve God above yourself. Do you really want to hear God? Do you really want to obey God? Spend time with Him. Get to know Him. Pray. Read your Bible. Get to know Him. 
We talk to God through prayer. God talks to us through the Spirit's application of the Word of God to our hearts. Don't miss the essential link between knowing God and hearing God, and then submit yourself to that knowledge. Don't miss the essential link between the more sure word of prophecy contained in the Scriptures and the depth of our knowledge. And look, I'm not just talking about intellectual knowledge here. I'm not just talking about you getting facts and information. Some of the smartest and most biblically literate people I know are also the farthest from God. We're talking about growing in a relationship with God, learning actually what he expects. There are people out there who know some sports stars better than those sports stars know themselves. They could give you the stats of the last 10 years of his career. They could give you the name of his wife and all of his kids, where he lives, what kind of car he drives. They know all the stats, but they don't know him. You can know all the stats about God. You can know all the ins and outs of the verses. But we're talking about knowing him, a intimate, personal relationship through time and through effort and through prayer and in love. This is the part of the relationship with God where we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, where we establish his lordship over us, where we regard his authority absolutely. And unfortunately, as I've mentioned, there are many believers, likely some in this room, who will never, ever get past this point. Who will never get past the point of simply saying, these are the things I can't do, and so I'm not going to do them, and I'm just going to live in this place of can't. And I'm just going to live in this place where God is resisting me and I'm resisting God. And yes, I know I'm a believer and he saved me and I get that. And I'm going to give him what I need to give him. And I'm going to go to church and I'm going to give my money and I'm going to do those things that I know I need to do in order to have his blessing. But he's not going to get me. He's only going to get parts. Spend your whole life wanting to obey God, but never knowing God enough to place him in his proper place, but never actually yielding to him. But if you're willing to take that next step, if you're willing to go deeper, if you're willing to dig a little bit, if you're willing to become more intimate in the knowledge of the Lord, it's after this that the floodgates open and the showers of blessing really pour down. To hear him, you must first know him. And then add and abound in grace and peace. Peter said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He said that he hath, his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue. And this is the fun part. Once you have the knowledge, once the day begins to dawn, once the day spring arises in your heart, once that which is a part of you consumes you with the knowledge of Christ, his authority is established in your heart. The sky is truly the limit. First, you must sanctify the Lord God in your heart. He must have first place in your life. And then Peter says, you'll abound in grace and peace. And notice how Peter describes this, continuing in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be 
partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You will become a partaker in the divine nature that as Jesus was unveiled at the transfiguration and his glory shone about, you will be a partaker of his glory. You will be a partaker of his power. You will be a partaker of his virtue. You will be a partaker of that which Jesus heard and the disciples heard on the mount when the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can be well-pleasing to the Lord as well. Having escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world through lust. When you come to know God, when the day dawns, the authority of Christ in your life is settled so that obedience is no longer an obligation but a joyful determination, life truly begins. The divine nature begins to live through you. The corruption of this world doesn't touch you. You have escaped the corruption of this world that is through lust. And then you can just abound and abound and abound and abound. Verses 5 through 7. And beside this, Peter says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Then you grow, grow, and grow some more. We have been blessed through the knowledge of God with the exceeding precious promises by which we can be a partaker in the divine nature. And to this end, we must be diligent. We must redouble our efforts. We must give all diligence to make our lives more than simply a life of faith. We must add to this faith. We must put our heart into applying the essence of God's character in your life. We must seek to abound in these things. And as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, they will grow in us and we will grow. And the sky is the limit because we've already said Christ is my authority. He's on the throne in my heart. He is the Lord of my life. And the rest just flows. And so we add virtue. That's moral excellence. That's moral purity. That is truth. That is righteousness that flows out of a sincere love for God. If you lack in virtue, it's because you lack in the knowledge of God. And then we add knowledge, a thriving understanding of God, of who He is and what He expects. And then we add temperance, a characteristic of self-control over every aspect of life. It's also one of the nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And we add patience, a fruit, also a fruit of the Spirit, not just toward others, but in every aspect of life. A willingness to persevere in efforts and in distinctions and in directions. And we add to that godliness a general and consistent piety in thought and in action. And then to that brotherly kindness, a love for others, hospitality, and a desire to bless those who are not yourself. Thinking of others above yourself. And then adding to that, charity. Which Paul tells us is the fulfillment of the law. And 1 Corinthians 13 says is the very greatest of all Christian virtues. Peter says you add diligently all of these things. It begins with your faith in Christ and then you pursue the knowledge of Christ and the obedience of Christ unto the same. And what happens when we pursue this with all of our hearts? Verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where knowledge means something. It means something when we haven't just, it's not just here, but it's here. When we do something with it. It means something when we hear him and we obey him. That's when the knowledge is not barren nor unfruitful. This is what John meant when he said in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we've seen him, we've handled him, we've witnessed him, and we're telling you these things so that you can obey him, so that you can live in fellowship with him, and then your joy may be full. Fullness of joy in life comes when we are fruitful and abounding in fellowship and knowledge of Christ through steadfast and joyful obedience to this more sure word of prophecy, which is the word of God, as led through the Holy Spirit of God. And so the question becomes, is this you? Is this you? Are you seeking happiness in all the wrong places? Are you seeking contentment in all the wrong places? Are you still stuck on you? Yes, you know who God is. Yes, you know what God expects. Yes, you know these things, and there's no question you know these things. You've, many of you have sat under my preaching for a long time, so I know you know something. But are they in you? Does it abound? Are you still stuck on square one? Does this stuff mean anything to you? Does he have all of you? Do you really know him? Are you spending time with him? Are you submitted to him? Is he truly Lord? Do you find obedience a difficult and unpleasant task? Or do you desire God's will so that it really isn't an unpleasant task to yield to him that which is inferior anyway? Have you added to your salvation or are you just stuck in first gear? stuck in the rut of the simple and nothing more. And as I mentioned, there are many Christians, many Christians who will never, ever get beyond that rut of simple faith. They're saved yet so as by fire, but they've got nothing else and they'll have nothing else. They'll never experience the joy, that fullness of joy and the glory that comes from living in a thriving personal relationship with their creator. And our final point warns us of this. To hear him, you must first know him, then add and abound in grace and peace or live blind. Or live blind. Imagine a man who wakes up every day before the dawn and the first thing he does is put on a blindfold. Then the rest of the day he stumbles around in self-imposed darkness, having every capacity to see, fully functioning eyes, and yet determined to live life with a handicap of his own choice and design. What a foolish way to live. What a terrible thing to spend your days not only hindering your own ability to succeed, but also your own ability to enjoy the pleasures that come with sight. Notice what Peter says in verse 9. But he that lacketh these things, the man that lacketh these things, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten. He's talking about believers here and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. You've forgotten what it's like 
to live the redeemed life. You're so stuck in the things of this world. You're so distant from the knowledge of Christ and the virtues that come with it that you don't even remember how good it was when you were walking in fellowship with him. And if you lack these virtues, as a believer, you have no one to blame but yourself. You have the power of the Holy Spirit through salvation. You have the truth and the will of God as revealed through the scriptures. You have every available advantage, but you have woken up in the morning and spiritually blindfolded yourself living handicap existence. Peter says you're blind, and I love that phrase, cannot see afar off. That literally means you're short-sighted, you're nearsighted. You, you can see, you're, you're looking at tomorrow, and you're saying, well, tomorrow I want this, so I'm going to pursue this. But you're not thinking ahead. You're not thinking about Christ. You're not thinking about the end game. You're living for today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And you've forgotten that there's an eternity. And you've forgotten that there's a spiritual existence. And you've forgotten that there's something so much more important than your happiness in the temporal things of this life. And so you're so stuck on yourself and what you want that you're actually blindfolding yourself to what is best for you. And we see this in children all the time. And I'm not just me little children. We see this all the way up. Children are so stuck on what they think they want that they don't really know what's best for them. And as adults, we see that, but, you know, we might be very well living it, too, with God. You've forgotten what Christ has redeemed you from, and you live ensnared by the sins that have long since been defeated in you through Christ. You were once a street urchin with nothing to your name, but the king saw you, and he found you, and he picked you up, and he cleaned you up, and he fed you, and he clothed you, and he gave you an inheritance, and he gave you a, a seat in the, in the castle, and he gave you a seat at his table, and you got all of these things, and you found them all, and while you're sitting there at the father's table, where you can abound if only you will, you won't because instead you've decided to get down from the table and go back to the street and put on the rags and live in those sins that you've been purged from. And Peter says you're blind and you're short-sighted and you're yielding long-term blessings for short-term pleasures that simply cannot satisfy. And it's not a happy way to live. Are there temporal, immediate happinesses? Yes. Is there fullness of joy? No. And my fear is this. And, my, and this fear is founded because at least to the extent that I've experienced it, it's founded. Because I didn't even experience this fullness of joy until I was 20 years old. And until then, I thought I was, I thought I was there. I thought I was fine. I thought I was doing fine. I'd never fully yielded. I was a believer, but I, I had things that I wanted and I wasn't willing to give them up. And so I just persisted in them and I did my thing and I served the Lord and I wanted to do what was right, but I never really got around to doing it. And I wanted to serve the Lord and it came and went and all of these things. And there was always that desire. But then one day I said, okay, enough's enough. God's got it all. And something happened and there was a fullness of joy that, that you simply can't. I can tell you this all day. I can tell you it all day day. I could preach every message for a year on this very topic and you will not get it until you've chosen to yield yourself to God's will and then you'll experience it. Blessing always comes after faith. Faith always precedes blessing. If you want the blessing, you're going to have to at some point grow up and believe that what God's word says is true.
And so we ask, who are you this evening? On the day of the transfiguration, Peter, not knowing quite what to say, offered to build three tabernacles to remember that event. And God told Peter, if you want to remember this event, if you really want to memorialize what happened here, don't put a bunch of stones and stack them on top of each other. Obey the voice that you've heard. Hear him. That can be the memorial. The memorial of what you have seen today can be a life that is exuberant with the glory of Christ. Because, see, we have a more sure word of prophecy than what they heard on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. And it's calling for us to hear him through the knowledge of him because the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And we have a choice. And maybe some of you, you have experienced that before. You've experienced the knowledge of the holy. You've experienced the fullness of joy and it's waned and the world has gotten back in and you need a re refresher. You need to pick me up. Can tonight be that night for you? And maybe some of you have been flirting with that edge for a long time and you're there, but you know what? There are just certain things in your life that you're not willing to give up and you haven't been willing because you don't want to and you're still living in this can't Christianity where you look at that and you say, well, God says not to do this and I'm doing it and it's, it's a can't idea and I don't want to give it up and you're just there and you're waiting and you're ready to be pushed over that edge into the fullness of joy. Would you take that step tonight? And you know, maybe some of you are walking in the other direction. Maybe some of you have said, I don't really believe this fullness of joy thing. I don't really believe that God's way. I'm sick of this can't stuff, so I'm just going to do. I'm just going to do what I want. You're blind. You're short-sighted. And you've forgotten that you've been purged from your old sin. Stop it. Turn around. Come back to Christ. And find in him a fullness of joy that you will never, ever, 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 ever find in anything that this world has to offer. Where are you this evening? Let us allow the words of God to dwell in us richly, to obey them with all of our hearts as the Spirit of God teaches and compels. Let's pray.